You're listening to Love Stories with me, Dolly Alderton, a series in which I talk to guests about their most defining relationships, the passion, heartbreak, longing, familiarity and fondness that has formed who they are. My guest this week is the journalist and author Cosmo Landersman. American-born but London-bred, his parents were bohemians who brought him over from St. Louis to Islington in the mid-60s, where he's remained ever since. He grew up in a house filled with the literati, rock stars and extramarital lovers. More on that later. In 1991, he founded the magazine The Modern Review with his then-wife Julie Burchill, which covered lowbrow culture for highbrow readers. He went on to become a popular journalist for The Spectator, The Times, The Daily Mail and The Guardian, and was the Sunday Times film critic for 13 years, bringing his trademark honesty and dry and self-deprecating humour to the job. In 2008, he published a memoir, Starstruck, about his eccentric upbringing, his scandalous parents and their desperate bid for fame. Cosmo and I first met when we were both put on the back page of the Sunday Times style as dating columnists in 2015, where we wrote weekly instalments chronicling our trials and travails in love for two years. Desperate search for love with each person we go on a date with. Yeah, and it, it took me a while. I think you slipped into the role and the tone and the parlance of the dating columnist much quicker and easier than I did. You're just because you're a much more experienced and talented journalist. <laughs> no, it's because I'm older and I've had more dates than you, Dolly. That's the <laughs> only reason why. <laughs> but I think it took me a while to get the knack of it. And once I got the knack of it, there was this sort of sweet spot that I remember you and I ringing each other for about six months where we just, it was great. And every column we were filing, they really liked mm. and we were really enjoying mm. it. And it was a kind of ephemeral period of time where it was just really fun. Mm. And it took me a while to get there. And what I realised was... I wanted to write these sort of philosophical meditations on love. <laughs> and what they wanted was yes. a soap opera, basically. Yes, that's right. They, that's it. That's what we were That's what we were hired to do, to pro- turn our life, turn the dating experiences into a continuing story. Yeah, exactly. Tune in next week. Tune in next week, folks. Yes. Yeah. So looking back on that time now, we haven't really talked about this. What It was two years, two quite long years. What do you make of it now? Well, in the beginning, I thought... Um, I am the luckiest man in the world. Yeah. I have the best job in the world. I get paid to go out on dates with women. We, you know, I was a film critic for many years, and this was far better than seeing films for free, every, you know, three films a week. Yeah. And I really loved it. Unfortunately, I think it went on for too long, the column. And by the end, I was exhausted. Mm-hmm. As anyone who's dated regularly knows, dating, you, you, there's period after the initial high, you get date fatigue. Oh, God. And yeah. you think, oh. I just don't want to go out. I want mm. to stay in tonight. And you've got this day and you have to make a big effort. And you're looking at your watch when you get there. How much more of this have I ever got to take? That's so that, the that's, worst. That's at the end of it. So yeah. the beginning, I had a wonderful time, a lot of laughs. It was really enjoyable. And the thing, I, it gave a lot, I know this sounds weird, but it gave a lot of people a lot of pleasure. People really enjoyed that column. I, you know, I've had done numerous columns before. And that's the first one, my first hit column after 30 years in journalism. So I was really chuffed. What a lot of people didn't realise is that you and I were sort of sending ourselves up. So there was an essence of who we were Mm. in love. Mm. So for me, it's sort of the hot mess that can't commit. Mm. And for you, it's the sort of desperate romantic Mm. who sort of gets things wrong. And you, you inflate that to make it more entertaining. Well, yeah, you have a comic persona. 
Exactly. It's, it's a it's a you. It's a sort of non-you based on you. Yeah. Because if you wrote literally what happened every time, mm. it would be too dull for the reader. Mm. You have to, I think readers understand there's a little degree of poetic and journalistic license. Yeah. So it's just like when you're sitting around at home with your your family and you tell stories about Uncle Bill. Yeah. You embellish the story about Uncle Bill a little bit, but yeah. it, you know, their Uncle Bill is there. Otherwise, and it's, and it's to distill who Uncle Bill is. Yes, that's right. It may not always be factual, but it's always truthful. Yeah. And that's, yeah. I think... Is an important distinction. But once that, once you have, once that's your truth and that's who you are, it kind of got to a point, I think, at the end of the dating column where, you know, there's that seven na- rules of narrative that there mm. are seven ways a story can yeah. go. Yeah. It kind of felt like that with the column by the yeah, end yeah. for both of us, I think. And I remember when the we had a new editor come in, we were sort of just waiting for the column well, to I be called to, to the guillotine. I wanted to pack it in much earlier than you, darling. You kept saying, no, 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 wait for the new editor to come in. Well, we just, the problem is as well is that it was fun. So you and I couldn't really jump, even though we felt like maybe we should. And then I remember there was, <laughs> you rang me probably about a month before we got the job. And you sounded like exasperated and desperate. And I picked up and you were like, babe, I've got terrible news. I don't think we're going to get sacked. <laughs> <laughs> and I was right. <laughs> you were so stressed out. And then we did. And then I got a call from the editor. And yeah. It was a really nice call because yeah. it just felt like it had come to an actual end. It did, yeah. And then I got a call from you 10 minutes later and you're walking down Regent Street and you're like, baby, we did it. <laughs> <laughs> we got sacked. <laughs> yeah. And something that I found, and I expressed my frustration about this quite a lot to you, something I found difficult was the correspondence that you and I received throughout those two years. Mm. I would say there was quite a large disparity in tone. Yes, you, you got the, the unpleasant correspondence where I got all the praise and how wonderful I was correspondence. Yeah, not just that. You got proposition after proposition yes. and nude photographs. I did get that. And I got a lot of, would you please take my mother out on a date? Yes. I was the go-to man for mothers who needed a a guy to have a date with. Well, do you remember I got to a point where I actually really lost my rag, where I think I received six emails in a week of either millennial women saying, Mm. can you pass on my mum's details (laughs) to Cosmo? Or millennial women saying, here's a picture of me. I really like Cosmo. Can you set me up? And I remember forwarding them to you. And I was like, screw this. I'm not your shagging secretary. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, there you go. But yeah, I got a lot of... You got a lot of abuse that I never had to, to get. You know, you got misogynist men and people like that, didn't you? Well, I got a lot of... Men in the home counties called Peter (laughs) in their 50s telling me where I was going wrong Uh and that I, that men didn't like that I wasn't looking for a relationship. Mm. They didn't like it. Mm. I think it made them feel redundant in life. Yes. And, you know, even with the extracts, the extracts of the book ran last Sunday. Yeah. Seven paragraph email from a man just handing out advice on where I'm going so wrong. <laughs> these, are from, these are all from single, lonely men who well, probably never had a relationship in their lives yeah. and live with their mothers. Yeah, it did really show me at that point the kind of the huge difference between male and female storytelling of that kind. People were con- the, the take home of the negativity with me was that people were concerned and slightly appalled by my behaviour. Whereas with you, 
people just found it so charming. Well, I don't un- quite understand that because I or I never understood that because your your column wasn't the you know the stories of terrible behavior or mm. great sexual promiscuity or anything. Mm. You may have got drunk a little now and then or you yeah. know whatever. Like, but it wasn't anything I thought was too wild. I don't know really what they're objecting about. No, I agree. I agree. So. As you walked in today, you had a dating dilemma for me. Am I allowed to talk about that? Mm. <laughs> yes. Cos went on a date last night with a woman. And uh, Cosmo at heart is a very American man. How many women are you currently dating now? That's a very American thing to do. Dolly, it depends on how you're using the word dating. Oh, come on. I don't think dating, if you mean by seen in a, within the context of a relationship, no one. If you were say, dating by meeting Various women for drinks or for dinner or to go to the cinema, one or two. With romantic intention. With I always keep romantic possibilities open. Never shut the door on romance. Who knows? So tell tell the listeners what happened last night. Well, my thing is I took this lady who's very attractive, although she's an artist. Never take a, a woman artist out for dinner, I've discovered. Why? They just talk about their art nonstop. <laughs> Like, non for two hours, my new exhibition, my this, my that, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh, God. Anyway, we had a really nice meal. I could see that she wanted to get back to her art. So I, the, the, the date lasted two hours. And I walked her back to the underground. And then, oh, I, also, I arrived with a present. I bought her a lovely book that she really loved. And I got a text today. And you took her to the Walsley. Dinner at the Walsley in a book is fifth date territory for me. I know. I went major. You went big. Anyway, I got a text this morning that went, Thank you for dinner and the book. No full stop, no kiss. She couldn't even bother to do the full stop. I didn't even get a one X. Now, I would think that's a little perfunctory. It is a little. What is the subtext? What is she telling me? Don't call me again? Uh, yes. <laughs> no, I'll tell you what I read from that. As someone who knows you quite well in these situations, she's not the girl for you because she's... Uh, she can't be tied down. She's a free spirit. You'd be subordinate uh-huh. to her work and her creative mission, and that would drive you mental. Absolutely. She spends a lot of time in chi- China and travels no, to Mongolia. You'd hate that. And she also told me that she believes that she she had lived former lives, which for me is a bit of a deal breaker. I must admit. No, come on. <laughs> she did. Now no, I, I want it. to take her out for dinner. <laughs> well, you you love a kook. No, that's 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 not the that's the wrong kind of kook. Hey, do you know what you? You like an intellectual kook. I like an intellectual kook. But you when people like... start telling me about their former lives, then I'm uh, I'm lost. Yeah, you have a low tolerance for whimsy. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So, Cosmo, we're going to move on to mm. first love now. I'd like you to tell me the story of your first love. Well, I was thinking about this. I think when you're that age, a young teenage boy, your first love isn't a person. It's a series of... In my case, movie stars. Yes. Who I fell in love with. Yeah. Um, you know, I fell in love with Julie Christie and Dr. Chivago, Catherine Deneuve and Belle de Jour. Oh, gorgeous. Susan George and Straw Dogs, as all boys did at that particular time. So those were the those were the women that, you know, you were it's hard to describe that first screen power Mm. where you are completely enchanted and for one kiss from one of those figures you couldn't ask for anything more that was the apogee of your desire of your dreams you know a woman like that but then later on one of course you know you get back to real life so those movie stars were they on your wall or did you have pictures of them they were on my mind 24 (laughs) 7 
Really? Yeah. You, I mean, you know, it was a very different world then. You know, movie stars and going to the movie was a movies was a it was a big big thing. Mm. It was like the biggest the big event of the week to go to the cinema. And to see, I don't know, someone like Julie Christie in Dr. Zhivago, she was so beautiful. I Julie mean, Christie's oh, very beautiful. I remember that red dress she wore and those those big lips and thinking, oh, there, there lies happiness. <laughs> it's funny. I always think now, because I used to have these fixations on celebrities mm. and fantasies, and I would, you know, write long pages mm. after page after page about them and our fantasy mm. life together or uh-huh. whatever. And I do think, thank Christ, I'd never had access to them on Twitter. Yeah. I think I would have been arrested. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously, imagine if you were told mm. when you were 15 that you could send a message to Julie Christie. I know, scary. I was at a pub once, and it was a one of these. It was a theater pub, and they were doing audience participation. I was dragged out from the crowd. I thought, right. oh, God, they're gonna. They want us to act in this play, or improvise this thing. Anyway, they drag this blonde woman out to, to be my partner, and it's Julie Christie. No <laughs> way. I thought she's not going to agree to this. She's going to go back. No, and we just acted out the scene. She was brilliant. She gave me a big hug afterwards. I Did thought, you My God. say to her? <laughs> no, I didn't. I was too shy. I was too shy. When to say was it. that? This is this is about I don't know ten years ago. But uh, it was an amazing. And she just played along. You know, some stars might think, oh, I'm not going to get up there and act. She was great. And did she? Was she as mesmerizing yes, in the flesh? Absolutely. She's yeah. still the Julie Christie lips. Yeah, yep. it was absolutely wonderful. Oh, that's a great end to that story. We have to talk about your parents. Okay, good. So your parents, Jay and Fran Landsman, I'm completely fascinated by them. I have so many things that I regret missing out on in life. Uh, one of them is I never saw John Martin play live. I never had lunch with A.A. Gill. And I never sat in your parents' living room in Duncan Terrace wearing your dad's famous Federer hat, smoking hash with them. It's like such a... I honestly long to have met your parents. So can you give to the listeners just a kind of pricey of the Fran and Jay story and who they were and where they're from and how they met? Okay. Uh, My father was uh, Jay Landisman from St. Louis. My mother, Frances, grew up in New York. They were both bohemians, uh, in the late 40s, early 50s, who hung out with Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy, and that, and, the, and they used to go to Greenwich Village and smoke mm. pot and hang out with jazz musicians and, and so on. Anyway, in 1964, they thought they'd come to London and try London out for one year. They came here. They only had one phone number. It was Peter Cook. And they immediately got plugged into to swinging London yeah. and became a part of that scene, having dinner with the Beatles and stuff. And, uh, you know, they, they, then they got, were involved with show business. And they had their own little house. And we would come down to dinner and we'd find all sorts of people, you know, Norman Mailer or Tony Bennett. And the 60s came. They stopped being bohemians and became more hippified. Mm. My dad's hair grew longer. My mother abandoned her bra and <laughs> would wear purple crazy clothes and my dad had these leather pants and they would arrive at my uh, normal tough working class uh, comprehensive school for parents teacher meetings causing me profound embarrassment and they got into the um, they had a kind of 
quirky couple of years when they were into the raw food movement. Is that is that? Uh, they were macrobiotic. That's or it. Or as I say, macropsychotic. <laughs> because my father became so fanatical about brown rice and food. When he caught my mother uh, eating an ice cream, he threatened to divorce her. He had caught her with numerous men, but that didn't bother him. It was the ice cream that nearly destroyed the marriage. So you paint them in your book, your fabulous book that I give to all my friends, which is a memoir so, called Starstruck. Well, I love it. You you kind of paint them as being comically deluded. Your dad wrote several volumes of his own autobiography that he referred to as the memes, the memoir. That's right. Is that true? Were they kind of, is that? They were, they were very talented people. My father was a writer and a producer. He did lots of interesting things. He ran a nightclub in America that one of the first venues for Woody Allen and Lenny Bruce. Um, and he did, had a very interesting life. And my mother was a, a lyricist who wrote jazz songs that were recorded by, you know, all sorts of people, Barbara Streisand, Ella Fitzgerald, Roberta Flack. And so they were very talented people. But at the end of their life, my mother became a performing poet. And my dad was determined to say he was going to make a star out of her. And they were just very, they became very uh, self-absorbed and very, you know, crazy about their career and talked about themselves all the time. Well, they were preoccupied with fame. Yes, they wanted, yes. For them, fame, fame was a validation yeah. that they constantly craved. So another thing that they were known for as a couple is they were sort of the first famous open marriage, weren't they? They were. I mean, I, I think other people had that kind of marriage, uh, but they were quite, they were really open about it. Most people just sort of hid and kept up appearances for the children and yes. for the neighbors, whereas my parents were very open about their marriage. They didn't care what other people thought. They just wanted to live their life. And while I don't think open marriages work, uh, don't try this at home, uh, <laughs> for most people, for them, it did work. They were very much in love. They really loved each other. But they, that side of life, they realized very early, wasn't for them. It was my mother's idea. And they stayed together right to the end. And you've always said to me, it's one in a hundred people that can do non-monogamy successfully. I would say one in a thousand. Really? I, I was being far too generous. Yeah. It's very hard. And I, it's, it's a system I don't think often works to women's advantage. Mm. Um, but it worked to my mother's advantage. Well, it there's that Joni Mitchell quote where she said, as far as I'm concerned, free love in the 60s was just a way of guys screwing around yes uh, they the free love and being you know don't don't be so repressed mm. don't be bourgeois was just a way of getting a woman into bed i mean she, she morally coerced into acting that way so as you said it was very open open to the point where when you were a teenager they invited camera crews into their they house. made a documentary yes yeah it was extremely embarrassing <laughs> and i did everything i could to avoid uh you know, watching the program. But fortunately, I had all my friends managed to call me up the next day and say, we saw your mum and dad on the uh, uh, open marriage documentary. But to be serious for a moment, that must have been not only very embarrassing, but quite confusing for a kid. Or were you okay with it? Well, uh, my position was, you know, if you want to have an open marriage, fine. Do you have to be so open about your open marriage? Couldn't mm. you be a little quieter? 
More dignified. More dignified. And, you know, maybe be a bit more hypocritical like other like other married people. <laughs> but they, they wouldn't do that. So, yes, I was very – but my entire youth was one of longstanding embarrassment, my parents, because of their unconventional – you know, I wanted a normal mom and dad. Yeah. I wanted one of those quiet, shy dads who – put her about in their shed or always in the back and a mum who's cooking in the kitchen and doesn't really have a life. You know what I mean? Yeah. A complete fantasy. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't have that. And my parents were very high profile. They were written about a lot in magazines and stuff. So we, you know, we always, we, I had to grow up in that. I, and I, I, I hated it at the time. Now I look back and I love it. Yeah. It took me 40 years to appreciate how my crazy parents. Yeah. And to appreciate how rare it is that an arrangement like that can work and also how commendable it is that they can do that while still loving and respecting each yeah, other. Yeah, they were. And in some ways they were very traditional mum and dad, you know, even though they were all bohemian, whatever. They were, you know, we sat down to dinner and we always had dinner and there was there was a proper sort of structure there. But they did teach me one thing. I, I didn't appreciate the time. They taught me to live your life the way you want to live it and mm. everyone else can piss off. Mm. And the time that caused a lot of trouble, but now I, I like it and I try mm. to teach my son that. One of my favourite episodes of Desert Island Discs is your mother, Franz. Sue Lawley asks rather prudish and baffled questions about their marriage. Um, and Fran just, she just overflows with love and admiration when she talks about your father. She says, um, she's, I mean, how old would she have been when she did that? She was. Was she 60? I yeah. Something like that? Yeah. Well, she, she said there's one point where she said, She's talking about Jay and she said, he comes up every morning with my breakfast tray and he makes me so happy, he makes me smile and I'm however old, I'm this age mm. and he still makes me feel pretty every day. Yes, that's true. He, I remember he always arrived with her, her special tea tray. They really enjoyed each other's company. I mean, they really got a kick. And I guess it's been a kind of still an ideal in my mind how a married couple should be, yeah. that you should... Make life with your partner fun. Yes, and exactly. So you should try yeah. and make have be together and have have fun and be enjoy each other's company. Yes. I want to play a clip of your mother reading a poem called "Semi Detached," which describes very neatly the freedom that she felt in the arrangement that she had with her husband. My sweetie and I are semi-detached. We're comfy and cool and perfectly matched. His lover is Anne. My lover is Art. We're semi-detached but never apart. When some of our loves are semi-destroyed, we make it all right by quoting them Freud. We play little games and never get scratched. It's easy because we're semi-detached. We each have a side that's free as the air, and people don't see the side that we share. Our setup is sweet, there isn't a catch. The secret is living semi-detached. A legacy that your father left you is that you won't date women much younger than you which we'll come on to later. Mm. But I found a paragraph in a letter that you wrote to your father for The Times, I think two years ago, to commemorate Father's Day. And I just wanted to read a passage from it. When I turned 40, you asked me why I never wanted to hang out with you. And I told you because I was afraid you'd embarrass me. Me? Embarrassing, you said. So I reminded you of that time in a club in Soho when you were pissed. I saw you lurch, lips first, at a sexy young blonde you were chatting up. You missed your target, <laughs> fell off your bar stool and crashed to the floor. But then you also go on to say you find yourself missing him now, kind mm. of in later life, mm. and you recall your childhood hero worship for him. You write, There was a time, though, in my pre-teenage years when you were my hero. 
I remember when you handed me a little piece of paper and on it was scrawled a message in blue pen that read, To Cosmo, stay cool, be groovy, love Jimi Hendrix. I thought you were the greatest dad in the world. I wanted to be a dad like you. Recently, I went up to the current Doctor Who, Peter Capaldi, and told him the story of how my dad got me Jimmy's autograph and asked if I could get his autograph for my son. He wrote a personal message and did a drawing of himself playing guitar like Jimmy. And when I gave it to my son, I was a hero too, just for one day. That's correct. That's a true story. That's beautifully written. And it's, you know, a lot of kids, you know, you said you craved the mother over the Argo. Mm. But your dad coming home with a note from Jimi Hendrix, yes, that's that pretty was, fucking cool. It was pretty cool. I wish I had that autograph today. <laughs> um, yes, he came back. and I remember him coming back and talking about having dinner with John Lennon and Paul McCartney at Peter Cook's house. And he was like, mortal people didn't have dinner with the Beatles. A Beatle yeah. in the 1960s was as high as it got in terms of, you know, fame or mm. glamour. There was mm. nothing bigger than that. I just thought, wow, what, a, what an interesting life. There was um, a girl um, who I used to, sp we used to spend holidays in North Wales in this beautiful idyllic cottage with the lake rolling by and the great mountains mm. by and Snowdonia you could walk to. And it was over there with the three beautiful sisters. And I fell in love with one of the sisters. Um, but she never fell out. She was most my first love and my first unrequited love. Aww. Because she always said, oh, I, you know, you're, you're really funny and adorable and you're like a brother to me. And I never got beyond the brother stage until much later on. So that was my first love. But what I think is interesting about first love is that I think a first love, especially an unrequited first love, mm. can be more damaging to you than your parents. It's, and you know, the Philip Larkin line, it's your parents yeah, who yeah. screw you up. I don't think it is. I think it's your first love who can do that to you. I think my whole sense of... Self-esteem mm. came from that rejection of my whole self-esteem issues came from that rejection of that first unrequited love. And how old were you in, when that happened? Sixteen. Yeah, that is a that is a vulnerable age. It's it's interesting that you bring that up because as you get older, you reflect on the kind of ha bad habits and insecurities mm. that you have and where they stemmed from, the context from which you're from. Mm. And something I have always wondered is. You know, I've told you what my parents are like. They're the most loving and wonderful mm. and stable people. And yet I've ended up, you know, pretty fine, but but riddled with anxieties mm. and insecurities. And I do think how could that, where would that have come from? And I completely agree with you. I think it's um, environmental with the opposite sex in my teenage years. And I think particularly when someone is just their sexuality and their sexual identity. It's just identity, emerging out into the world. Exactly, it's just burgeoning. And how it's received by the world will have a very powerful influence. Completely. It's why it's like classic case of great beauties like, I don't know, Marilyn Monroe, who could never see it, who did thought yeah. they were ugly or unattractive. is because when they were young, yeah. they had this reaction when that budding, you know, sexual mm. beauty emerges and it's mm. very negative. Mm. And, you know, and I was kind of a chubby teenager with a bad haircut and I hung out with these people who were all tall guys, super cool guys who all played guitar and rock bands or whatever. So I was the cute, I was the nice funny guy mm. that nobody wanted to sleep with. And mm. that, uh, you know, I think that really had an impression on me. Yeah, I think it does stick with you forever. And particularly, as you said, when it's just sort of in bloom, it's like a very 
It's a delicate it's flower. It's a delicate thing. And if it's tampered with or mocked or if it's taken advantage of in young women or men, mm. I think there's it, that cuts a very deep mm. scar, I think. Yeah. Well, I think a part of my <laughs> problems in romance today is based on that. This constant need I have for affirmation from women mm. comes, I think, from wanting the affirmation of that particular woman. And you said that something happened later on in life. Did you? Did we you... had a, we had a little fling later on in life. I had to wait twenty five years. Wonderful though. Then she dumped me again for another guy. So, but you know, at least but, I got you know. We yeah, got to was a bit was there a part of you that felt like you were triumphing for that sort of chubby yes. boy? Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. like dorky teenage self felt oh my god i'm sleeping with the goddess this is like <laughs> this is a miracle i don't believe it i kept thinking of my younger self yes when of he, course he, he, he would think that, that last you know yeah. i had to wait 20 years but hey it was worth it you and i i think could not be on more opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to commitment would you say that's fair uh, yes. Would it be fair to say you're very much a textbook monogamist? Uh, I hope so, yeah. One girl guy, to quote Bing well, Crosby yes, in High I'm, Society. I, I, yes, I, I want commitment, and I think you're a little more ambiguous about it. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. say the least. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But have you always been like that? Did you... This is me having my amateur Freud hat on, okay. forgive me. Okay. Did you crave that as a child or yes. as a teenager? As a teenager, I always dreamed of the one. Did you? I've always believed that there is this one amazing girl out there and that one day I will have the glass slipper and I will put it on her foot and we will live happily ever after. And do you think, the Freud hat back on, <laughs> do you think that was because the idea of that provided boundaries and security and a constant that you were missing in your family, perhaps? Possibly. Yes, Dr. Freud. I think that <laughs> you might have something there. Yeah. So you excel at marriage. You've been married twice. Yes, and I'm currently in between marriages. And, and how uh, many times have you proposed? Once or twice. I mean, seriously? Do you mean seriously or drunken proposals? I'd say all. All together, I want to know a round number. I don't know. Ten, maybe. I'm embarrassed to say. There's obviously crazy, jokey proposals, and there are serious proposals. I have proposed to other women, uh, about three other serious proposals, yes. So how old were you when you first got married? Uh, I was 29 or 30 years old. And that was to the journalist Julie Birchill? Correct. How did you propose, if you don't mind me asking such a personal um, question? I never proposed. It was spontaneous combustion. <laughs> um... My, my thing about the one, this dream girl I had, when I was a teenager, I always said, one day I will meet her and yeah. she will be beautiful and she will be brilliant and she'll be so funny and so smart and great. And I remember people would say, oh, God, your expectations are too high. Mm. No one can live up. There's no such thing as a dream girl. Mm. Well, listener, I met her and I married that woman. That was Julie. That was Julie, yes. Um, uh, and what was it about her that you fell so hard for? Well, she was extremely beautiful and she was brilliant. I mean, her mind, uh, she had a brilliant mind and she was incredibly funny. Yeah. I never met a woman so funny. Mm. I mean, she nearly killed me once because I was asphyxiating. I couldn't breathe because <laughs> the laughter was so great. I mean, seriously, I had asked her to stop. And how old were you when you got married for the second time? 
was married to Julie for 10 years, so about 40 or something, 42. So how long did you have in between wives? Well, I had none. There was a long gap. There was actually, no, I must have been older. Maybe I was 50. I can't remember. Yes, you're right, because I had another relationship that lasted seven years. Right, okay. Yes, we were okay. girlfriends, uh, yeah. When I did my Cosmo deep dive into Google last night, God. I read this horribly sad piece that you wrote for the Mail Online in which I felt very protective of you when I read it, that you allowed the Mail Online to do this to you, where they interviewed sort of sado journalists. <laughs> and it was like Liz Jones looking a bit sad, uh-huh. holding her cat, uh-huh. saying, what did all these people take from the relics of their divorce? And you said... The only thing I wanted to keep was the one thing I couldn't have, her. So I let her have the furniture, the books, the records, the photographs and the wedding videos. The only thing I managed to salvage from the wreckage of our marriage was my broken heart. Were you camping that up for the Mail Online's pound Uh, per word? Yes, of course, I'm a journalist. (laughs) Yes, a little bit of that. But it was true. I was very much in love with Maxine uh, when, when we got married. And I had really high hopes that everything was going to be all right this time. And... We had a very, I remember one time sitting with Maxine at the kitchen table. We just ate an omelette. It was not, nothing big. It was an omelette and the kitchen was nice and the baby was there. I thought, you know what? This is perfect. Yeah. If this never changes, I'll be really happy. I've got this beautiful, loving wife. Mm. got my little kid and, mm. you know, it's nice. This is good enough for me. I didn't want anything. I didn't want a bigger flat. Yeah. I didn't want more success. I didn't want more fame. I thought, this is great. If I could just keep this. Mm. And I kept it for a bit and then, then I lost it. And again, if you don't mind me asking such a probing question, what is divorce like? Was there any sense of relief or catharsis or is it no, just terrible. horrible? It, it's um, It's very upsetting. And I remember the day we went to court to to, to settle the financial thing. Uh, the the financial settlement was very much to Maxine's favor. Mm. And I thought, don't be bitter about this. Mm. Don't don't carry on any anger. And I made a decision right there and then not to be angry about anything with Maxine ever again. And I thought, you know what? It's only money. Forget it. I said, Maxine, come on, I'll buy you lunch. Really? And we went out and we had lunch together. And it was a really mm-hmm. nice way to start our new life together. And she's been very loving and very supportive of me ever since. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad I didn't get caught in that guy, anger, resentment, mm-hmm. bitterness that can follow a divorce. Yeah. You've told me a number of times that the one thing you really want now is a marriage. Yes. Why is it? What's I the know, deal you with you and marriage? Dolly, you don't understand about know, marriage, do you, at all? Sell it to me. I, well, I've been trying to sell it to you for years. I never <laughs> do. I love the idea of marriage. I love being a husband yeah. and having a wife. It has a form to it. It's kind of a narrative structure. You know, marriage is a, has a beginning, it has a middle, and it usually has an end in my case. <laughs> but for some people, you know, it's, it's classical. It's an aesthetic thing, partly. You know, you go to parties, you meet this couple and they go, oh, this is my partner. I think, what, are you in a law firm or something? You know, it's just <laughs> something different about this is my husband. This is my wife. There's an, mm. I love the idea of, I think marriage is one of the most beautiful, brilliant and stupid things a person can do. It's irresistible. You've said to me it's a leap into the darkness. It's the leap. It's when you yeah. get on the edge together and you hold hands and you jump into the darkness and sometimes you fly and sometimes you fall. But that bit where you fly together is so fantastic. It's mm. worth the risk. Mm. 
And I love that. I love the courage. You have to be a little crazy and brave to get married these days. You know, it's falling out of favor. But I love, I love the idea of looking across the table and seeing a wife. I don't know. Mm. I can't really explain. Also, I think it's much sexier as well. <laughs> so you're a man of great passion, I would say. But I'm going to get you to choose just one. Tell me the story of passionate love. How how do you mean by passionate? Let me sorry, Let me just clarify our terms. Passionate. Okay. Love, do you mean erotic love or can be? Can be. I think for me, it would be something that you throw yourself into wholeheartedly, perhaps at the expense of your logic. Uh, it, it pains me to say this, but I, I I think my great passionate greatest love was my first wife, Julie. Really? Um, yeah, I was, I was very much in love with her. I was completely besotted with her. Uh, and at the same time, I knew the marriage wouldn't last. So when you say, you know, against reason, yes. I knew I was doomed. Did you when, know that from the day yeah, of the wedding? Yeah, and I told my mother. I told my mother, this woman is going to dump me one day. And I was right. But I would have to say... I was completely bowled over by her at that particular time in my life. Even, even though I say that, you see, the great passion, you know, I think the great passion is the person that you're with at that time. You know, you say, who is the love of your life? Well, immediately I thought about Julie because you know, I'd never been married before. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. but the woman, whatever woman I'm with, she is the great passion of my mm-hmm. life at that mm-hmm. particular time. My, my last... Girlfriend Alice was the great passion of my life. So I, I need to balance that out a little bit, I think. I'm hoping to fall madly in love again. I like to fall madly in love one more time before it's too late. Oh, don't say that. Mm, You're only 63. Well, you know, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. Who knows? It will, and you're going to be like your parents. You're going to live forever. I hope so. I think that you are the definitive woman's man. And why is that? Because you once told me that you find it hard to be friends with men because you do not know what to do with them. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. I don't know what to do with men. I don't understand male company. And <laughs> men don't really want to hang out with me either. I've never been asked to give them best man speech. I, you know, I have two and a half buddies and that's about it. I don't know what's, I don't get the point of men. I don't know. What's the point? So what is it about women and femininity that you're so drawn to? I, I think I, it's, a, this, it's part of a dream I have, what I enjoy. Should I tell you what my ideal setup is, what I love doing? I love it when you meet, you're, you're having a cocktail in a darkened bar in the afternoon there's the gentle purr of jazz in the background, and you're having this culture, and you're having the best conversation. She makes you feel that you're the smartest, funniest man in the world, and you make her feel that she's the funniest, smartest woman in the world, and you just click. Yeah. Everything you say is like a tennis. The ball comes back. You mm. go over that kind of flow. It's just one of the great pleasures of my, my particular life. You're talking in a platonic sense there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it can go the other way, but even just in a platonic sense, it, yeah. can, it, can, it is just so delightful. Every time you and I go to a party, we bump into at least one, more often than not, 
two or three, in fact, the last party, four of your ex-girlfriends. <laughs> I don't remember that. Oh, yeah, I do. Other yeah. than that one very funny time that's very rare for you, uh, they always greet you with the love of an old friend. Yes, that's right. That's other right. than one incident, that's right, which yes, made right. me laugh a lot. Um, is it important to you that you stay friends with your exes? Yeah, very important, yes. I don't, you know, on the whole, I have been friends with my exes, most of them. And, you know, I still love them in a way. I know that sounds kind of strange, but unless they have a reason not to love them, why shouldn't I carry on loving them? Yeah. If they're the same person, they're the same there. I, I, feel, I still feel that great love and I want to be supportive and helpful and, you know, maintain the relationship. And weirdly, there's quite a strange sense with you and all your exes that I've never quite seen with a pair of exes before, where not only do you have this effervescent, you know, love for each other, you feel like partners still in a weird way. Like last weekend, I was having brunch in Islington and you walked in with this woman and my friend said, oh, I think Cosmo Landisman just walked in. I was like, oh, that's one of his ex-girlfriends. I've met her before. And you and that particular ex-girlfriend, yeah. you almost feel married when you're together. You have this kind of joint identity that even though you're not together is still very much intact. I guess a part of me, with every ex-girlfriend, I still want to be the boyfriend. Really? I think I'm still struggling to get back to boyfriend status subconsciously. Yes, I want, to, <laughs> I want them to adore me more than their current boyfriend. Yes, I confess. <laughs> So, yes, I, I have that, yeah. You seem to me like someone who's sort of embarrassment-proof. Well, I've been through the hell of embarrassment after what I went through with my parents. And what, what could you possibly do to embarrass me? Well, indeed. And I wonder if maybe that set you up with a social armour that means that everything sort of bounces off you. And I remember last year we had Thanksgiving dinner at your flat. And we had one of your ex-girlfriends was there. Your second wife, Maxine, was there. Um, they were talking. Your second wife was talking about how she's friends with your first wife. Your gorgeous son was there running around. Yeah. All your friends were there. It was this, you know, we were all smoking and drinking and laughing in your living room. And it was uh, a very beautiful, entangled mess. <laughs> and it struck me in that moment that you've constructed a life where everything is very intertwined and intimate and you made a decision not to be weird about it. Do you think that's true? Well, I'm not sure why would, it, why would I be weird about it? What's the weird bit? Most people would find that quite hellish, I think. Really? Yes, Cosmo. I if don't you get had it at all. your second wife sitting, <laughs> drinking and smoking with your ex-girlfriend and also talking about how she's had lunch with your first wife, yes. with all your friends, that, you know, it, it, is, is, very, it is very intertwined. I never thought of that. <laughs> Come on. I swear to God, I'm not trying to be, I never, honestly, it never occurred to me. Just never occurred to me. Well, I think that's thanks to your parents. Possibly, yes. Yeah. I think that you're very relaxed about that kind of world. Um, I guess so. Gosh, I've never even thought about it. I'll have to think about that next time. What I'm saying is I don't think you hold resentment. You don't say this was your role for then, this is your role for now. No, I don't. I, this life's too short for resentment. Or being angry or, or all those things I used to experience. No, I, I don't want to do that. But I think socially you, you're pretty embarrassment proof. 
I yes, I I'm not yeah, I'm I'm very outgoing. I'm I like my father, you know, yeah. I'll go up to people and I'll talk to them. I'll go, I'll talk to celebrities, I'll talk to whoever it is. I'm not intimidated socially. Yeah, I know. You took me as a plus one to, <laughs> to Dina Brown's book launch. Right. And I went outside for 5 minutes and I came back and you were gesticulating at George Osborne telling him how to edit his paper better. Yes, I did give him some wise <laughs> words of wisdom. I hope he'll follow that through. Yes. <laughs> Quick fire round. Okay. Biggest celebrity crush? Uh, the actress Gina McKee. I, I think she's one of the most beautiful women in the world. Describe your dream woman. Um, incredibly funny, incredibly smart, dark hair, pale skin, and laughs at all my jokes. <laughs> Best snog of your life? Best snog of my life was... The, my unrequited first love. Best snog of my life, yes. Most dazzling feature in a woman? Are you talking about physically? Anything. Her brain. Who would you want to be your best female friend? Uh, I have lots of really great female friends. I'm really lucky in that way. If you could choose anyone in the world. I, th I can see you and Dorothy Parker whiling away the afternoon with martinis. Yes, I like Dorothy Parker would be good. And Leibovitz would be good. Um, all sorts of people. Joan Rivers, you'd have a great time with her. I'd have a good time with her. Uh, I like, I would have had, um, there's an American writer called Janet Malcolm, who writes in New Yorker. I, I, I like her stuff. It's very good. So back to this younger woman thing. Yeah. You have a bit of a policy, a bit of a party oh, yeah, line. Yeah, yeah. Tell me why that is and what that is. Okay. My younger, my, my um, don't date, don't pursue younger women. My father pursued younger women. My father pursued any woman, actually, as long as she had a pulse. And I don't think a non-pulse would have put him off. So I, I, I didn't want to be like that. And I think the spectacle of older men pursuing young women... Uh, can be very it's it's visually <laughs> it's unappealing i don't think it's appropriate if a younger woman you know is insane enough to pursue me then fine I, <laughs> I, i'll accept that and i'll try to help her with her difficulties but i don't want to be an old latch and i think you know we're, we're talking about this at a very interesting time what's going on between men and women yeah. in in the post weinsteinian world where all the rules and rituals are being renegotiated. Yeah. And for someone like me, I wonder if my kind of style is anachronistic, is no longer appropriate. Even though I don't feel, I've always been very careful not to make women I'm seeing, you know, feel awkward or embarrassed or feel coming on in a sleazy kind of way. I, I've been very sensitive about that. And I, you know, I, I, I try to avoid that. What so, do you mean? Because you're quite forward. Well, I am, I'm very, uh, someone said I was very flirtatious. I like to flirt. Mm. I, I don't really want to change, but I don't, you got to get the balance right. Yeah. So things that one time were acceptable don't seem acceptable anymore. Like what? Going up to a woman and saying, will you have a drink with me? Oh, that's acceptable. Well, that's not fine. not in America now. That's, that's on the question. That's no, on the question you and now. I need to do a masterclass. Okay, good. I think that's a good idea. Something that you also told me recently that I found interesting is that you said you think you will always lust after older women no matter what age you are yes i've always liked older women i've always thought older women were more beautiful in a way even when i was a younger man i had older girlfriends and there's something about 
an older woman, the way her face becomes lined and the texture and there's a look in her eye and the way she carries herself, there's a confidence. It's just very attractive. You told me you saw a woman on the tube the other day and you were overcome with lust and she must have been in her late 70s. Yep, she was absolutely beautiful. Mm. I see these young women, I have a young, young women friend and the pressure, you know, the kind of pressure of a social media age of looking a certain way and whatever, all this stuff about body issues. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that one day this generation of women will come up and just say, you know, fuck that. I'm going to live my life the way I want. Yeah, and yeah. I'm not going to be that person. And if you don't like it, take a walk. That's what they should do. I can't wait to be that woman. I'm going to be the woman who wears the purple hat. <laughs> eats all the samples in the supermarkets. But don't wait till you get old. No, do you're it right. now. You're right. You're right. Do it now. If they don't like it, take a hike is yeah. what I say. As we've gathered today, you've felt a lot of love, you've lost a lot of love, and you've mm. learnt a lot of lessons in love. You've got how many? About 35 years on me? Yeah, something like that, yeah. What one piece of wisdom would you pass on to me when it comes to love? Uh, I'll give you two bits. Don't give up on the idea of love. Don't be cynical. Don't, you know, people say to me, well, you've been married twice. How can, how can you still believe you want to do it again? And I say, I will never give up. I don't yeah. want to give up on love. It's the most exhilarating, most wonderful thing that we can experience. And it's very easy to get cynical and say, oh, can't be bothered, can't be asked, blah, blah, blah. I think that's a terrible mistake. And the second little bit of wisdom, which you know I'm trying to remember, is that once you find love, take care of it, because you can lose it very easily. And that's something that's taken me a long time to realize. That kind of the work doesn't stop the minute you find yeah. it. Yeah. You see, I've always managed to find love, but keeping the love, mm. that's, that's part two. And I don't think that we pay enough attention. To part two. To part yeah, two. I agree. We think, ah, I've got love. Mm. It'll take care of itself. Because, no, yeah, it yeah. won't. But it's because those films that we love, those old films that you and I love, well, yeah. the ending is at part, the end of part one. Yes. Yeah, you they know, never see the second part when they're living together. It. Yeah. yeah, we didn't see what happened when Harry and Sally actually started to live together. Yeah, exactly. And drove each other crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so, for your last love story, I'd yeah. like for you to tell me the story of everlasting love. Um, I thought about this everlasting love. Doesn't have to be a person, be a place or a thing. Well, it's partly. I still think that everyone I really love. I still love, you know, in terms of girlfriends, but my everlasting love is for my family, I think. You, you mm. never stop loving them. I still love my parents. I love my, both my boys. Um, that, that kind of love. And I love my friends that I've had. You know, I'm a very lucky man, even though I write a lot about this sort of disappointed, grumpy guy. But a lot of that's for comic effect. Yeah, a lot of it's for comic effect. But I, I've been a really lucky man. You yeah. know, I have really great female friends. I've got a couple of good, crazy male friends, too. And I've got a lot of people that love me, and I, they know I love them, too. Mm. Uh, you know, we can get very cynical about these things and embarrassed at all, but I'm not. I think this, this is the most important thing. Mm. You've got to have some love in your life 
Mm. And you've got to be able to give love back. Otherwise, I don't, what are you doing? But Tolly, don't you think it's typical of your generation much more than mine is that a lot of the young women say, you know what? Down with love. I can't be bothered. I can't be bothered with men. I don't really believe in love. You know, there's a very cynical, disenchanted point, probably for good reasons. I'm not yeah. saying it's not for good reasons, but isn't yeah. that true? Is that is that a fair thing to say? You millennials well, are not that keen on it? I don't know. I think it's um I think there's been a bit of a mass conglomeration w- with the magic of romance because of the internet. I'm afraid to say, I'm sorry to sound like an old fogey, mm-hmm. but I do think dating apps have left a fatigue on a lot of mm. young men and women. I feel it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm exhausted. I'm 29. <laughs> well, as you know, you know, yeah. it's been, I've had a year out from it and it's mm. sort of been the easiest year of my 20s. But I also feel that something has happened uh, with men also, there was a time in like the early 90s when it looked like men were really getting their acts together. We, How you know, so? What well, do you we, mean? We heard a lot of talk about new men and heterosexual men were loosening up and they were happy to, you know, they were going to embrace babies and commitment. And there was a, men seemed to were evolving to a way that was far better than the old stereotypes. It looked like a bright future and something happened and men got... They lost that that trend. They lost that evolution to, you know, they 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 embraced feminism. Yeah. They 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 seemed to be evolving to this new world that they were living in. They weren't getting angry and whatever. And, and, and something happened. And now a lot of women I know, particularly young women, are very down on men. They don't. And we can see a lot of this is happening as a result of the Me Too movement is, is coming well, up. And a lot for good of it's reason. That. A lot of it's that. Also, I think a lot of I was going to say, I thought we, we were getting away from that. Maybe I was just naive to, to think that. Well, I think a lot of it as well is the dissatisfaction and the uh, feeling of being just incredibly unimpressed by men in young That's women. That's what I'm hearing. I think that a lot of women for generations and generations have felt that. But thank God, we've just finally... Found Is that a language for to, it. You're, you're prepared to say it now. Yeah, yeah. I think we're finally prepared to talk about it. Yeah. And I also think that feminism has become so accepted and mainstream mm-hmm. that it means that women live less in fear of voicing those frustrations and being labeled the sort of mad, unlovable, crazy feminists. Mm. So I think we're just talking about it a bit more. Look, I'll get there. Okay, thank God for that. Cosmo Landersman, thank you for sharing your love stories with me. Thank you for having me, Dolly. Thank you for listening to Love Stories. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes to give the series a boost and help others find it. And you can buy my book, Everything I Know About Love, published by Fig Tree, in Waterstones, on Amazon or in all good bookshops or buy the audiobook on Audible. Love Stories is recorded in the Penguin Studio in London. The music was composed and recorded by Lauren Benstead. Tune in next week when another guest will be telling me their love stories. 